Today, an organization that aims to teach us how to live more fulfilling lives. School of Life, the brainchild of British philosopher Alain de Botton, produces books, workshops, and even cups of coffee that aim to help us develop our emotional intelligence. In a very special episode, we sit down with its Australian director, Kai Lofgren, to talk about how the company is popularizing philosophy, adding integrity to enterprise and big business, and helping people escape dogma and lead fulfilling lives. That's ahead on the final episode of Let's Be Honest. Hello and welcome to Let's Be Honest. I'm Dom Hennequin. In 2008, philosopher Alain de Botton founded the School of Life, which runs workshops and publishes literature covering everything from living well and finding fulfilling work to mastering relationships and understanding the world. Declaring itself a place to be free from dogma, the physical construct of the school takes many different forms. Here in Melbourne, it's in the shape of a cafe located on 669 Burke Street, just up the road from Southern Cross Station. It's a cosy and intimate environment where the walls are lined with books, which are indeed by the School of Life, but also by influential philosophers like Freud and Byron. The staff are talkative and the coffee's reasonably good. Yet while the brand of School of Life now spreads across the globe with stores in Paris, Amsterdam and the original store in London, just to name a few, this isn't simply a franchise. Each store has a different personality and takes a different form. Kyle Lofgren is the Australian director of the School of Life, and he joined my colleague Matthew Cox and I to discuss what sets the organisation apart from your average self-help publisher, the business behind the philosophy, and why moving into the era of great technological change, it's more important than ever for people to develop deeper emotional intelligence. Welcome to Let's Be Honest, guys. We've got Kai Lofgren from the School of Life. Kai, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And Matthew Cox from Dialogue Consulting is here to help me as well. Coxie, hello. Always a pleasure, Dom. <laughs> Always a pleasure to have you on. Kai, why don't we start by talking about what is School of Life, where did it start, and how long has it been around for? Yeah, of course. The school was started in, I think, back in 2007, 2008, um, by a man called Alain de Botton, who many people have heard of and read his um, incredible books. He's uh, published since the age of about 23 on topics of like love and architecture and work and marriage and um, death and lots of things in between. Um, and back in 2007, 2008, he got together with uh, a number of his friends. A lot of them were philosophers themselves and thinkers. Um, and they were talking about the idea of how do you actualize their, their ideas in the world in, the, in a form that isn't books. Um, and really that was driven by a desire to engage more deeply in the day-to-day conversation in people's lives and also an understanding that the, a lot of the concepts they were writing about um, come to life in conversation. They don't come to life on the page. Uh, so when you're talking about you know, the depth of uh, marriages or um, finding a job or these sorts of things, you can read as many books as you want, but almost always the breakthroughs that people have are in conversations with people. So with that kind of background, they thought, well, why don't we start a school? Why don't we start a place where people can come and explore these topics uh, with other people in a very secular, very serious, but also quite a playful environment, one that's really, really accessible to people. And so they thought, what the hell? And they threw, threw their money in and threw their passion in and, and started the school in 2008. 
And since then, it's, um, it's been sort of success after success. They've been sold out effectively since day one, running a whole range of classes and workshops and large-scale secular sermons um, that have really just engaged people in lots and lots of different ways. What do you kind of attribute that success to? Um, because I know when I, I saw Alain speak a while ago, he talked about the idea that he was often considered to be like a, a popularist philosopher. And his, his concept in relation to that was he kind of welcomes that sort of label because, you know, your work is not really mean, mean much. Un, it doesn't really mean much unless it's, you know, unless you can popularize it. And do you think School of Life has helped sort of popularize philosophy in that regard? It certainly has. I think it's, I think it's a little bit broader than that, though. I think there's, there's a, a sort of an innate um, human nature that we often explore with ourselves. We sometimes explore with those people around us, those loved ones that we have around us but that we re very, very rarely explore with strangers. Um, and there's something the School of Life has touched on, not necessarily um, strategically from the beginning, but has stumbled upon, is the idea and the power of exploring deep questions of living and dying with strangers. Mm -hmm. So with people that we haven't met before, um, that we haven't got uh, emotional baggage with, or that we haven't got um, you know, prior, prior engagements with. Which means that when you can sit in a class, um, and I can tell story after story of experiences that I've had over the last 12 months since we've been opened, where within a few minutes of speaking to someone inside the School of Life, we've started broaching incredibly deep and personal topics that I think society tells us we shouldn't do. Um, and the School of Life is trying to turn that on its head and say actually it can be incredibly powerful, incredibly consoling and nurturing to explore these big topics with people we haven't met before. Mm. So I think there's a, a number of factors that drive its success. There's also obviously um, philosophy comes and goes in waves um, for sure, in popularity, and, and Alain has managed to tap into that really nicely with his work. And the School of Life is certainly riding a really strong interest wave in, in philosophy. Um, and even here in Australia, we saw, I think a couple of years ago, the launch of the magazine, The New Philosopher, mm. which is an extraordinary publication, um, which isn't uh, sort of fighting against that idea that you, to popularise something, you need to dilute it, mm. um, which is a concept that I'm you know, very strongly opposed to. I think that popularization of something um, to some extent proves its value mm. um, practically to society uh, and there doesn't need to be dilution in that yeah. process. The more it can stay intact, the more powerful it is, I exactly guess. Exactly right. Um, so lessons that are sort of taught in these publications, in these books, range from, you know, how to be alone, how to be sad, how to consume art, how mm. to live in the digital age. What's the target audience of these lessons? Is there one? I'm sure somewhere down the line there is. What is it and how do you know if it's been successful? Yeah, it's a fabulous question. And um, there's the sort of the soft, fluffy answer and then there's the real answer. The soft, fluffy answer is... Kai just winked at me. I'm yeah, just going to put that in there. Um, the soft, <laughs> fluffy answer is that the, it's for everybody. Um, and that's, in all seriousness, we look at the people's lifespan so, and what are the big transition points in someone's life. And so if you go through that from the beginning, you look at you know, your late teen period when you're considering life and self and what you're going to be when you grow up and these sorts of questions. You then move into a career and through your formal education and you have lots of questions around that. And then you probably wake up 10 years down the track and have a life crisis and go, I was in a job I hated for 10 years, what do I do now? Then you get into your first serious relationships and maybe get married and have kids and then maybe you fall out of love and you have to go through the sort of a divorce or a breakup. Um, and then you might get into a second career or a third career. You might face death for the first time. Um, you might, you, so there's sort of, it, it, there's a spectrum here um, that you can, that you, everybody goes on in some ways. So I, I guess, guess that sort of answers who 
it's potentially yeah, for. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had the co-learn guys here and they gave it, they called it the cheap answer, if you will, <laughs> which is, you know, technically it can fit everybody. Yeah. That's the perception. So now but give us the evil, dirty reason. No, no, no. It's more like who, who actually consumes it. Yeah, so, so who's the first... Yeah, the first seat. I guess it's also about when when a question like that is asked, it is also about the time scale that we're asking it on. Um, so clearly, the early adopters for an idea aren't necessarily mm. the full vision of who you would like to come to the classes sure. um, or come to the experiences. So the early adopters are what they are for a lot of concepts like the school. They are relatively educated in a city. Um, skewing towards women rather than men because I think women jump at concepts like this more quickly than men which is fascinating that three men are having this conversation um, <laughs> and then there's and then there's sort of the um, uh, people who obviously have the capacity to pay for an experience like this um, and who have the time to read a book um, and there's so there's, there's a lot of things in there that do skew the early adoption audience and again much like the co-learn guys said like it is definitely getting out of the system enough to imagine that there's an answer yeah. out there to yeah. actually think about the question of what is life you know how to be sad how do I do this whereas most people who are working for someone else don't have the time. Yeah, don't have the luxury. I guess I'd also say that um, we are actively working on that demographic question. Mm. Yes. So we're not accepting that. I think we could run a very um, stable, uh, quietly successful little organisation just feeding that demographic. Of course. But we're working on all sorts of outreach projects to work with young people specifically, to work with retirees and people in aged care facilities, to work with people in rural and regional areas. Um, so there's lots of strategies that we're putting in place can to you try give and expand a, that audience. Can you give us a sneak peek in terms of how you sort of see the School of Life scaling away from just those early adopters and towards the audiences that you're talking about? For sure. Um, there's lots of different ways of, of talking about that question. Um, there's physically. Mm. So we would hope in, in the next two years that we would be open in both Sydney and Perth um, with a permanent presence physically. Um, whilst also running a smaller festival-style programming in regional centres. Very cool. So the regional centres might be one-week program on the Sunshine Coast or a one-week program in Geelong or Bendigo, but then you'd have these physical presences in Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, maybe the other capital cities as well. You've kind of answered this question in that, you know, I was going to ask why are you not just a publisher? Why do you need a physical space? Because we're seeing this more and more with so many different brands. The brand extends from off the page into a cafe like monocle do that very well like school of life have obviously done that mm. very well kinfolk and different things like seem to be popping up with a place you can go um why is that um so important and secondly why melbourne so straight after london it seemed to be it expanded overseas and it came to melbourne very very quickly why mm. melbourne yeah, they're, they're interlinked, those questions. So um, the, the, to complete the kind of history of the school um, that we started with, mm -hmm. um, it became very successful. Then I was working with an organisation called Small Giants, which is a, an impact investment group based here in Melbourne. Small Giants is a, effectively a family office that decided to dedicate all of their resources towards um, impact projects, which if you think about the investment spectrum from kind of the normal bad stuff, then you've got ethical investment, which screens out the negative. Impact investment is one step beyond ethical investment, seeking organisations that are actively impacting the world. Um, so I was working there, building their portfolio of projects um, for about four or five years. And we came across Alan's work. We started a really wonderful conversation with him and his team and his wife about their bigger vision around the school, which was to internationalise it. But at that stage, they hadn't done that. Um, then we started the conversation about, well, let's just test it. So we ran a pilot in Collingwood in 2013 
which was 60 events in 10 weeks and everything sold out and it was all wonderfully successful. Um, we then went back and did a sort of a six, seven, nine months negotiation on terms and how you set up a, an international structure around an idea like the school. Um, and then we signed the first license agreement. So it was really, um, yeah, it was a bit fortuitous, I guess. Uh, we were there at the right time. Alum was there at the right time. Um, and then we, uh, we opened the first one outside of London in March last year. And it was us, you know, opening in March that then precipitated the openings in Paris and London, uh, Paris and Amsterdam and Belgrade and Antwerp and Rio de Janeiro and a whole other locations coming soon too. This might be a good sort of segue into a question that, that I was sort of wanting to ask. Um, it wasn't a long time ago that I read a book called The Lean Startup, which was a book by Eric Ries, which you might actually be familiar with. And in that book, he gives a definition of what he describes as an entrepreneur, which is people that we're speaking to all the time here at The Hub through this podcast. And he basically, within his definition of an entrepreneur, excluded people who run franchises or who license off franchises. Do you agree as, with that definition? Do, would you consider yourself to be an entrepreneur as a result of this? And why sort of why not? Um, yeah, look, I think there's a problem with... Um there's a problem with books like The Lean Startup in the sense that they very quickly become, and I don't know how many times I referred to that, I've heard people refer to that as the Bible of mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, yep. um, which is, you know, to be honest, and, and excuse the language, a load of shit. Um, <laughs> there are so many models of entrepreneurship out there mm. and so many different ways of skinning a cat, to use another bad colloquialism, that, um, that I think that's a really, it's a fallacy to mm. start from And if there was point. a Bible for it, we'd all... Well, there's a problem with Bibles, right? Possibly be successful, wouldn't There's a problem with Bibles inherently. They're dogmatic, they're Mm. one-dimensional, and so do I think that applies in this case as well. Not to say there's not great learnings from that book. I read it. It's wonderful in lots of ways. Um, The point around franchises is interesting. You can't franchise an idea like the School of Life, um, and we're not formally a franchise at all. Um, We certainly share a brand. We certainly share some core content. Um, We certainly work together as a global content engine, Um, but so the context a, is different across every single spectrum. The context is different. The yeah. physical manifestation is different. You know, the school in London was a bookshop for eight years. You know, we opened as a cafe. Mm. Um, we run, you know, up to 50% of our content on our public program is locally created. Um, and then we run this sort of backbone of how-to classes that we, that we program as well. Um, there's, a, there's a stigma to the word franchise. And I guess what we were hoping to achieve is, is a global organisation that can literally pull the best minds in the world together to develop effectively the best content the world's ever seen when it comes to exploring these questions of self and, and, um, and you know, our, our broader lives. And that's a really powerful big idea that's certainly not actualised just yet, um, but that's kind of the big vision that you know, anywhere around the world, if you're considering these issues of quite universal significance, and you walk into a school of life, you can be quite sure that there's been a hell of a lot of rigor and the best global minds who have put together that content for you to experience. So you're sort of saying that, yeah, I suppose your answer is maybe yes, you do see yourself self as just as much of an entrepreneur, yeah? Yeah, it was a way of not answering the question. Yeah, of course. Um, let's talk about the actual content though. So why do you see that? Um, what way are you leaning to the answer of that question? And with, in regards to the content that you sell, you produce, you teach, is there Melbourne-based content, like Melbourne-created content, yeah, and does that go global as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I was being a bit flippant around the term entrepreneur. I mean, I, yes, I think I'm an entrepreneur, um, but I think that even that word and that label, um, we have to be very careful as to how we use it because I think a lot of people 
um, use it in a way that actually creates quite a strong separation between those people who start an idea and start an organization and all those who follow. Um, so what's an entrepreneur to you? Well, I think I've got a, a team of people that I'm working with. You know, we've got 12 staff now and every single one of those people is driven to the same level of passion and degree that I am. Um, every single one of those has the same amount of initiative and innovation capacity as I have. Um, and I feel incredibly lucky that I was in a position to be given the leadership role that I was given or that I took the leadership role that I took. Um, but that was really a question of timing and the people around me at the time. Um, it, I don't think, and I think this is the case for a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, we often forget what has been given to us before um, and the circumstances that we came to where we got to, even to the extent that we don't think about our parents' role or the way we were born or large big picture macro questions. We often come back to um, the ego and the self and, and, and become a little bit self-promoting without understanding that and how that, how that impacts other people around us. And are there parts of um, School of Life that you've brought innovation to in the Melbourne sense of things? Oh, sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned before the cafe side of things. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we were exploring lots of different front of house options for our little business and um, it made a lot of sense for it to be a cafe given the Melbourne context. But more, I guess, deeply than that, um, we thought it was really important to have somewhere where people could come and kind of know what to do. Like you walk in the door of a cafe, you know you can order a coffee, you know you can sit down, and that's perfectly acceptable. And that's really important, it sounds kind of dumb, but it's really important in the context of not, people not really knowing what the school is. Um, and if you don't know what the school is yet, it's good to be able to explore it in a comfortable way that you're actually quite familiar with. Um, so we really thought it was really important to sit down, to you know, look at our conversation cards that we hand out with our coffees, to, um, you know, to, to have conversations with our staff, and that's the way you get to know the school. It's not just a website, it's not just a bookshop, it's, it's something a bit more integrated and something you can experience. It sounds like a lot of effort went into designing that kind of experience of someone walking through the door of the cafe and, and discovering, I suppose, the concept that is the School of Life. Mm. We talk about these conversation cards. I actually have some with me right now, Kai. And so I'm going to pop some of your own medicine at you. <laughs> Do you have any enemies, according to this conversation card? <laughs> um, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Um, but I'm disappointing. Yeah, disappointing. But I, undoubtedly, I probably do. Although I think enemy is a very strong word. Um, and if we boil that down, I think there's probably very few among us who have actual enemies, unless we've done something seriously bad. <laughs> if you're an enemy of Kai, why don't you leave a comment on our art? No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. <laughs> we'll bring you in. I'm on Twitter. They'll find me. Facilitate the debate. Yeah. Um, going to another quote, I guess the school of life, the mantra of it, at least on the website anyway, um, is it promotes developing emotional intelligence through the help of culture. Mm. Can you explain what that means and how one would do that? Yeah, great question. The, the, um, so I'm a civil engineer by background. Yeah. Um, so I'm, uh, I also studied an arts degree at university. I studied philosophy and history and politics. And then I studied bolts and pipes and beams and structures. Um, so I was a bit split personality. Um, and, and what I realized very early in my studies um, was that uh, there was this massive juxtaposition in learning styles. So in the arts, in the humanities, there was a real encouragement of um, divergent thinking, um, lateral thinking, stepping outside of yourself and looking at it objectively, et cetera, et cetera. Um, being kind of a big picture in the way you think about the world. In the engineering side, for good reason, it's convergent thinking, it's systems, it's processes, it's formats, it's outputs that are really easily identified and understood. Um, there's very little room for deep questioning in something. And you, that's good, because we're sitting in a building that we hope won't fall down, and that's because of good civil engineering, right? 
but I thought that there was a real problem that people who were studying in the vocational fields, engineering, law, medicine, accounting, etc., weren't often weren't exposed to the world of the humanities and often saw it as kind of a nice to have something that you know is kind of good for those Melbourne Uni kids over there to go and study the arts they've got the money to do it they've got the time to do it they can go and do that but for the rest of us who want a job we're going to go over here and do the real stuff and that's a parallel that seems to follow into pretty much everything pretty much provides the good products that sell really well and actually communicate emotionally with consumers from the bad ones yeah exactly right but of course there's two points around that that are really important. The first one is that if you interview, you know, 100 people on the street and you say, you know, who do you remember from history, 99 out of 100 people will mention someone who's worked in the humanities. They'll mention an artist, they'll mention a musician, they'll mention someone who's done a philosopher perhaps, someone who's done something quite profound from the world of the humanities. It's very rare for people to mention a lawyer or an accountant or an engineer, I say, you know, unfortunately. Um, And so there's an element there of, you know, long-term contribution to society the humanities are incredibly important sort of point number one point number two is that when we're talking about um, our emotional selves or our emotional intelligence um, the humanities provide us with an incredibly powerful portal to explore those questions so if you're looking at a painting thinking about the emotional response that you have to that painting can illuminate questions of your practical everyday life, how you relate to your parents or how you relate to your partner or you know, how, what sort of job you might feel like you want to do rather than perhaps you're good at. It kind of helps you get under the surface of a lot of these questions. Um, and so it's not, a, it's not that it's just a nice to have, it clearly is a nice to have. We like going to the movies with our friends on the weekends. But what the School of Life believes is that humanities actually provide us with a bridge, a portal to explore some of these questions that before now you might not have explored consciously or if you have you've done it in private so let's take that into some of the training that you guys do not only within the cafe with individuals but for businesses Mm. consulting Mm. for businesses in the corporate world there we've got culture and emotion coming into the world of business culture corporate culture Um, what is the value proposition there what can school of life offer a business and how successful is that? Is that just sort of like a free commission for you guys or is that is there something more to it and how successful is yeah, it? Yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it. Um, I guess our, our big vision, uh, both at the School of Life and at Small Giants, which is our parent company um, that I mentioned earlier, is that we believe business can be a very positive force for good. Um, and ultimately, that foundation idea is based on the idea that all of us as individuals are inherently good. Um, with some small exceptions Um, but generally speaking we're all inherently good and what unfortunately what corporate culture has created over you know the last 50 years are are cultures that don't necessarily nurture the individual they treat individuals as economic units Um, the language in businesses very much frames that quite obviously Um, and so what we're trying to do with the school of life's content is actually allow companies to engage their staff as full human beings once again rather than just as economic units that are linked to productivity, um, that are linked to the bottom line of a business. And of course, if you look at all the studies coming out of the Harvard Business Review or the Stanford Social Innovation Review or any of the top line business journals in the world, we can all prove that greater emotional intelligence in an individual will lead to greater productivity, better talent retention, better business outcomes. So there's a clear business narrative here that we can provide better Um, tangible productivity and bottom lines for companies but that's not the pitch the pitch is that it's fundamentally the right thing to do to treat our biggest assets our people as people 
Um, and if that can translate into a bottom line outcome for a company, then fantastic. It's the cherry on the cupcake. But that is the bonus, exactly right. That's not the intention. The intention is to treat people as people once again. Um, so we're exploring that with a whole range of companies and we're finding that that is an incredibly popular idea at the moment. There are a lot of companies that I think have realized that they are losing a lot of their younger staff, particularly Y generation staff, um, more quickly. There's much less stickiness um, for staff to companies in this day and age. Because um, the so business is coming to you or yeah, they are. coming to them? they are. They're coming to us. Uh, you know, we, that's what our public program is wonderful at. So we get people coming to a public event, uh, a class or perhaps, um, and then they come and talk to us about, you know, this would be great in our company. Um, and sometimes it's for a specific cultural reason. You know, they want one of the people we work with, uh, their main business challenge was that the most self-reflective, emotionally intelligent, emotionally aware individuals in their company were the least confident. And the most confident people in their company were the least emotionally intelligent. Um, and that was a problem they wanted to solve because what happens in business is that confidence is promoted um, most of the time you know confident outspoken extroverts particular personality types are promoted and this company wanted to short circuit that so we're working with them on that specific kind of business conundrum um, mm. but there are lots of other reasons as well i think you should backtrack for two seconds because you talk a little about this shift in terms of you know you see a lot of the uh, the gen y's particularly leaving the companies earlier and this i suppose uh, and i see it with a lot of uh, organizations nowadays is trying to change that paradigm i suppose from a a company is a place where you go to work you punch the clock you do your time you leave you go home to your family where you live the rest of your life and actually enjoy life to this attitude that a, an organization should be somewhere that you can be proud to work that is your home i suppose um what do you think is kind of driving that shift and that change in mentality particularly amongst younger people yeah there's a big question very um there are clearly lots and lots of factors at work. Um, the flow of information is so much better these days that you can see what other people are doing. Mm. So I think that's a sort of the superficial answer is that um, when you know what's going on elsewhere, you're more likely to explore it for yourself. Um, big picture though, I think we've probably reached a little bit of a point in capitalism more broadly where we're realizing the unsustainability of the core model. Um, we can see that environmentally, we can see that from a, corp from a commercial perspective with the GFC, we can see that with a whole lot of macro trends, we can see that in the fact that uh, you know, ethical superannuation funds did better than any other fund through the GFC, um, we can see that with invested, large major investors all around the world taking a longer view of their investment terms than they ever have before. Um, whilst at the same time the kind of Wall Street markets take an even shorter and shorter and shorter view and kind of implode on, on top of themselves. So there's sort of a whole, whole lot of things going on there. I think there's a redesigning of the way that our um, capitalist system is working. I don't think it's going to revolutionise into anything kind of radical on the socialist end of the spectrum, but there is a recalibration of our values and our, how our values are integrated in the capitalist system. The best manifestation of that is the B Corporation movement, um, which I was really proud to be part of, the Small Giants team that brought that to Australia. Um, we were the first B Corp in Australia, which is a really wonderful milestone, and now there's, I think there's 70 or 80 B Corps in Australia. For those people who don't know B Corporation, look it up, it's a wonderful movement. Um, but basically it's an accreditation system that accredits businesses based on their value to their community, to the staff, to the environment, yeah. and, and on top of that, their shareholders. It takes effectively a stakeholder approach rather than a shareholder approach. And again, this is not a radical thing. These are very commercial companies that are B corporations. Um, but it's saying that 
success cannot and and is not sustainable to only accredit success to the bottom line anymore. Mm. Um, there needs to be more metrics for success other than just, well, how much money are we making here? That's exactly right. And one of those metrics is how we treat our people and that's very much where the School of Life comes in, is how do we work with companies to you know, support them to develop the whole person, not just the professional side. We've heard a few times on this series so far um, of what the world will look like in 10 to 15 years. I mean, a lot of jobs probably will not exist. Um, the age of tech is sort of, it's here, it's developing, and it's developing at a faster rate than it ever has before. Mm. Obviously, School of Life has a lot of um, views on how to live you know, in the digital age, but it's also going to continue to change. Um, how does School of Life, are you guys positioning yourself to be in a certain part of the market when people may be jobless and need advice and need um, sort of a way forward um, a little bit more in mm. the future? Are you guys positioning yourself for that? And what's your view on that? What's your view on technology and what's going to happen in the world? Yeah, so there are a few things in that. Um, the School of Life generally doesn't have views that are specifically, um, that they're trying to convey to people on these topics. What the School of Life is that actually... That would be dogmatic. It would be very dogmatic. I mean, we, we, and we certainly have perspectives that we, that we amplify, but we, we see our role as a translator from culture and philosophy to people to explore a certain topic. So we talk about trying to reframe questions for people. Um, so a lot of people, when they come to a class on how to be creative, for example, they actually don't think of themselves as being creative. So they're coming to the class to break through that. And what we're saying to them is, this class isn't actually about taking someone who doesn't, who who isn't creative, and make them creative. We're all creative. We're already we're already creative. So we're trying to use the history of how we approach creativity to reframe their perspective on that topic. That's kind of the first thing, because we're a kind of a history-based organisation. We like thinking about you know, wisdom that's come before us and that's how we guide our thinking today. We think that's a, a nice way of thinking about the world. Because um, you've got books and stuff from Freud and Byron um, and stuff like that in there as well. Yeah, look, we, we, we're across the last few thousand years. You know, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we really like to, to mine you know, the treasure trove of human knowledge, yeah. um, which, is, which is a wonderful thing to do. It doesn't mean that you don't think about the innovative thinkers today. No, but there are resources on how to think engage them as the well. Um, the point about that is, though, that... We, I think as, a, as human beings, um, we do tend to inflate our self-importance. And I think we do that as a culture and as a society as much as we do it as individuals. And I think there's a, there's a narrative today which is that we are changing more quickly than we ever have, um, that the, we're in the midst of the biggest transition the world has ever seen. Um, and I'm pretty sure they were saying that when the car was invented and when you know the printing press was invented absolutely and so th this, this is not a narrative that is new it may be more pronounced than ever before um, it may be that it is faster than ever before but i think it's important when we're thinking about these big changes and these big impacts on society that we don't forget that human society has been around for a very long time and we've managed these sorts of transitions before and there'll be bigger transitions to come. It's good to have context. So as you said, yeah, it's context, it's perspective, it's perspective. rather than a way And I guess thinking. to answer your question, I think that's where the School of Life can play a role. So when people are thinking about, you know, I'm drowning in digital technology and I don't know how to manage it, it's like, well, yeah, it might be hard for you right now, but look, we can find a way through it. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, if you're thinking about something like... Um, and the nature of the problem of drowning in the new is not necessarily new in itself. Yeah, exactly Other right. people like us have felt the same things and experienced the same kind of challenges. And if we look at their, I suppose, reaction to that and how they rose above and mm. triumphed in relation to it, 
mm. you actually probably can find not a roadmap for success and thriving yourself, but certainly a good point of reference. And probably the confidence to navigate it yourself. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of things in that. I think that the um, we don't have a, um, a particular strategy for exactly where we're going to be in 10 years and how we're going to manage this ourselves, but we certainly see ourselves growing as a global movement and as a as I said before, building an incredibly strong global knowledge center for these kind of topics. Um, and in the business community, we see that as being you know, as important as the current people who play in the business consulting and business training space, you know, companies like Bain and McKinsey and BCG and these guys. You know, they've played a certain model for a while now. We think that model is coming to an end. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the subject of leadership and um, how it's sort of, I suppose, you feel very fortunate to be in a position where you can take leadership over these uh, groups of 12 people that you're currently at the helm of. I mean, can you talk a little about how that sort of weighed on you and, and how that sort of informed your way of thinking as, I suppose, a, a person who is master and commander? Yeah, that's a horrible way of putting it, master and commander. <laughs> um, I, I think... The, the only lesson, one of the biggest lessons, sorry, not the only lesson, mm. the, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned um, with the School of Life, but also with small giants, is um, quite simply that you're only as good as the people around you mm. uh, and that the people that I've assembled, sometimes by chance because they just happen to be around, sometimes we've gone and found somebody, um, they're the people that have made the school incredibly successful to date um, and they're the people that are going to build it into something very, very special. And I think... I guess to wrap that up in a bit of a virtue that I think is sadly lacking, particularly in the entrepreneurial community and to some extent particularly in Melbourne, is the value of humility and empathy to those around us. Um, and, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of panels that talk about founders and the founder's journey and, and I feel like that is a, it's a dangerous narrative because if we want people to be innovative, if we want people to take risk, if we want people to follow the sort of leaders that we want to promote, then we really have to stop separating them from everybody else and start talking about um, you know, the power of the first follower or the power of the people who themselves take a chance and step out and work for somebody else or the people who are fighting the really good fight inside large companies because they honestly believe in their power to do good in those organisations. They're just as important to the, you know, the progress of humanity as those people who um, you know, put themselves on a stage and talk about their entrepreneurial journey. I'll finish with this. Um, you personally, Kai, what's the best advice, the best lesson that you've gotten from School of Life? I think there's sort of the, 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 the business person answer to that or the, the operator answer to that, which I think is you know, what we just talked about, the power of humility and, and making sure that you have people around you who um, feel empowered to do their jobs incredibly well and, uh, and share in the success of the organisation. So that's kind of the business answer. The personal answer, and I might share a little, little story, um, is really around the, the willingness of people to engage in the deep questions that the schools engage with um, very voluntarily and very easily, and the juxtaposition of the fact that people don't talk about these things outside an organisation like the School of Life. So the story is that I was sitting in a class, um, I think it was towards the end of last year, um, and I sat next to a woman who would have been in her 50s uh, at the time, uh, and she, her, parent, her kids had just you know, grown up, they'd just left home, and her marriage was falling apart. Um, and this is a, quite a common narrative when kids grow up and leave home, the relationships are tested again, and again, another point in transition in people's lives. And so we started talking about this, an incredibly painful um, sort of term. She was talking about it in, in great detail. And then I shared with her... Um, 
a story from, from my past. A couple of years ago, my wife and I had a miscarriage, which was incredibly traumatic for both of us, especially for my wife. Um, and that tested our relationship in a, in a variety of ways. I'm very happy to say I now have a seven-month-old son, and that's a wonderful next stage in our journey. Um, but, you know, in this, in this interaction with this woman, um, inside five minutes, without knowing each other's names, we'd shared incredibly personal experiences with one another. And in the process of sharing them, had um, started to console and nurture each other in those journeys. Very different experiences, very different backgrounds. Um, but the class hadn't started yet, a faculty member hadn't started talking, content hadn't started to be shared. The only thing that had brought us together was to sit in a, a classroom um, in a space that had been designated as safe to explore these topics. Um, and that is a, uh, an exceptionally powerful thing. And if we can do that for one person, fantastic. If we can do that for you know, 25 people in a class, even better. And if we can run what looks like being about 350 events this year, um, just in Melbourne, uh, that's even better. And who knows what happens next year and the year after that. Kai, thank you for being so personal and thanks for joining us on Let's Be Honest. No, thanks so much for having me. That was Kai Lofgren, the Australian Director of School of Life, speaking to my colleague Matthew Cox and myself. And that's Let's Be Honest for this season. I want to say thank you to The Hub for giving us a place to record the show and find our stories this season and to Dialogue Consulting for producing the show. Do subscribe to our feed on iTunes and SoundCloud as there's more exciting things ahead for us this year, and I'll catch you on the next episode. For now, I'm Dom Hennequin, and I'll see you soon. 